What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. This is a very special one. This is part four of our five-part series on nostalgia. We are covering movies, live-action movies, that Laurel and I watched when we were kids, and we're reinvestigating them, we're re-examining them, we're giving them the Midnight Myth treatment trying to learn a little bit about these movies, see what makes them tick, if they hold up, and what lessons we can learn from them. If you've listened to our previous episodes, you know we've already covered a whole bunch of wonderful movies. Last week was Beetlejuice. This week, we are going to phone home. That's right, everyone. We are going to be talking the 1982 Steven Spielberg classic sci-fi movie, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. I am very, very, very excited for this one. E.T. is a very special movie for me. When I was a boy, we went to Universal Studios, and I got plucked out of a crowd, and I got to ride the E.T. bike in front of a movie screen where it looked like I was flying across the moon in that iconic shot. We all know it when Elliot and E.T. are flying in the middle of the night. This is going to be... A great episode for me. I I am I'm literally shaking with excitement because I can't wait to talk about it. Um, so we've got a lot to get to today. So before we get too busy, before we roll up our sleeves and get to work, we do have a, a special announcement here in the Midnight Myth. We typically use this part of the show to plug our own work, to ask for ratings, reviews, etc. But this is Sunday morning in May. And Philadelphia last night had protests that turned violent. And parts of the city were on fire. There was looting. There's arrests. And this was in response to the brutal killing of George Floyd that was caught on video that has sparked unrest throughout this entire country. And we wanted to forego our typical support us and ask you to not support us. This podcast stands firmly with Black Lives Matter. We are firmly anti-racist. And we wanted to, instead of plugging ourselves, ask everyone if they can to maybe donate some time or money to some good causes. Absolutely. So thank you for uh, saying that, Derek. As you said, we stand with Black Lives Matter and we stand with all those who are protesting injustice across our country. 
and we are thankful for those who do not stay silent. If you have the dollars to spare right now, there are a few places where you can spend those dollars to combat racial injustice, like the Minneapolis Freedom Fund, which I know is providing legal support in Minneapolis right now. Uh, there's the NAACP. You can donate to your local chapter of Black Lives Matter or to your local charity bail fund. Uh, these are all uh, resources where you can put those hard-earned dollars, and there are many, many more. I'll put some links in our show notes. The other really important thing that you can do is vote. Uh, so if you are concerned about voting this year and you haven't gotten your mail-in ballot and your state allows it, uh, please get a mail-in ballot um, or find a safe way to vote when you can, whether it's in a primary or in a general in November, um, because your voice is so, so important in lifting up the voices that have been so long unheard. Yeah, it may seem silly for us to sit here and talk about E.T. in the middle of a global pandemic. Over 100,000 Americans have lost their lives and the cops are murdering black people, causing great social unrest, justifiable social unrest. Uh, this is not a political podcast in its very nature, but we had to say something. And I do think in a weird way, at least for me, E.T. was cathartic. Because E.T.'s central theme hinges on the empathy of two individuals, E.T. and Elliot, who don't look alike, they don't speak the same language, they're not the same color, but yet they develop such an intense bond. And one of the lessons that I've taken as a white person of privilege is to try to be empathetic and listen to the people that haven't had the privilege I have had. And anyway, we wanted to say that. Thank you for listening. Please donate to any of these causes. Laurel and I will um, do a donation. We haven't figured out exactly where yet, but we will. We'll probably post it on Twitter. And um, we love you all. Stay safe. If you're hurting and you need us, reach out to us. We're here for you. And we're ready to listen and to learn and to love. Yeah, thanks. And let's go on with the show. Yeah, Shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Let's do it. Spoiler alert. Spoiler for alert for a movie that came out in 82 that every single human being has hopefully seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, E.T. is a movie that starts in a California forest with a unexpected creature coming from another planet, being separated by strange men from his spaceship and stranded. Then we go and we get to meet Elliot and his family. They are dealing with a recent divorce with a failed marriage, with a single mother, with three kids, and Elliot is the middle child. This is when Elliot discovers this stranger from another world in his uh, shack or barn outside and lures him in using Reese's Pieces. Elliot and this uh, strange creature form an instant bond where they start sharing each other's biological and emotional states. They have a psychic connection they discover that E.T., they name him E.T. as extraterrestrial, has the ability with his finger to heal small wounds, to bring plants back to life, as well as he can move objects with his mind. As E.T. starts to learn parts of the English language, he says he wants to phone home, wanting to return to his home planet, and Elliot and his two siblings help concoct this amazing device which can seemingly contact the spaceship so he can get a lift off of Earth and go back to E.T. planet. 
This plan doesn't seem to work, and E.T. starts to get symptoms of being sick. And since E.T. and Elliot are sharing sort of a biological psychic bond, Elliot is somehow also getting sick. It's at this point where the strange men from the beginning of the movie come back. They turn out to be a group of government scientists, and they take over Elliot's home, studying the connection between Elliot and E.T., and ultimately somehow severing it as E.T. dies. Elliot gets a moment alone with E.T. in which E.T. then resurrects and Elliot and his friends and his brother have to go on an elaborate bike chase to get E.T. back to his spaceship, dodging all of the government officials. E.T. ends up reuniting with uh, his alien planet or his alien spaceship, I should say, and he gets to fly home and the spaceship as it takes off leaves the trail of a rainbow. Oh, my God. So sweet. What a sweet It really, really is. I already talked about at the beginning of the podcast how much this movie means to me personally, how strongly I connected to E.T. and to Elliot as characters. But, you know, as we've done with our other episodes, I want to know, Laurel, how do you think this one holds up? Uh, This is an interesting question for me because unlike every other human being on the planet uh, who grew up in the 80s and 90s, uh, E.T. was not a favorite of mine growing up. I was just, uh, as a kid, I didn't really care for it. I didn't watch it a lot of times like most people. Um, so it doesn't pull any nostalgia heartstrings for me, which is really, I think, unusual. Um, however, watching it now as an adult for the first time in probably like 15 or 20 years, um, I can appreciate so much more about it. I can appreciate so many of the subtleties and nuances going on with the relationships between the characters. And I think what really held me back from loving E.T. as a kid is that I I thought it was slow. I just had like a poor attention span and wasn't able to pay attention to it. But now I can appreciate how much nonverbal storytelling there is, how much visual communication there is, how much can be communicated with an audience without speech. Um, and that comes across to me as like incredibly skillful and masterful. And the relationship between Elliot and E.T. is drawn so, so beautifully over a really short period of time. So I absolutely think this movie holds up, even though I don't have the like emotional connection to it that someone like you does or that most people do have to this movie. I think it is pretty freaking flawless. Yeah, I... Just in a pragmatic level, all of the acting is still great. Um, The E.T. puppet looks fantastic. Henry Thomas as Elliot, you know, most child actors can't hit the kinds of levels that he does. I think he's really, really wonderful. Absolutely. Totally agree. You have uh, baby Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore. Which is just adorable. precious. And fantastic. And um, I think the story has so many amazing elements to it. Obviously, Steven Spielberg... He knows how to direct a movie. The directing doesn't age. The wonderful score. I will say this time and time again. John Williams, thank you for being alive and for making music and putting that in these iconic movies. Literally, like, you can't separate the score. From that swell of emotion. Yeah, it just produces such an impact. I am thinking, I'm hearing the music in my mind, and my eyes are literally watering with tears of joy because that's how it how good it makes you feel. You don't get that scene where Elliot is flying through the full moon without the music. The music is what kind of 
anchors that whole thing and makes it get such a punch. So obviously that doesn't age poorly. It ages like a fine wine. Yeah. I think this movie is a wonderful classic. The only aspect of it that I noticed now as an adult that I did not notice as a kid is the insane amount of product placement in it. Oh, yeah. And this movie was a game changer when it came to product placement with Coke and Reese's Pieces and Speak and Spell and so, so, and Coors and Yo Play. Like this movie really set the template for uh, how capitalism and Hollywood would work together in the future and how much those partnerships would solidify uh, throughout uh, film history. I mean, it is a famous story now. I'm sure we, you all know it, but I'll tell it. Steven Spielberg approached the Mars company because he wanted E.T. to have M&Ms. And they said, absolutely not. You can't put our product in that. They just didn't get it. And the company that owns Reese's was like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. And man, what a difference that had made. What if those were M&Ms and not Reese's Pieces? Now, M&Ms, fine. Everybody knows them, too. But it it is... It goes to show you the power of using film, not only to tell a story, but also to sell products. And that part, seeing that as an adult, which I did not pick up as a kid, that's the idea. You don't realize that you're in part watching a commercial when you're a kid, and that's how it affects you. I mean, everybody watched E.T. and went out and got Reese's Pieces. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we all did. We all started eating that candy. None of us were eating it before then. And that is, um, it's an interesting meditation as an adult. It doesn't age well for me. That part's like, oh God, did they have to put this many product placements? Obviously the candy is a major part of the story. And so that needed to be there. And so that's okay. But seeing all the other product placements was just like, oh yeah, I see where Michael Bay, how Michael Bay became a thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, it didn't put me off um, necessarily because it, it never felt like anybody was holding up a Coke can and being like, yes, I'll come and help you phone home, E.T., after I take a sip of my delicious Coca-Cola. But I get what you're saying. I absolutely do. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, so Steven Spielberg's the master. Yeah. He does it with some subtlety, but I noticed it for the first time. I don't think it ruins the movie for me. Like it doesn't make me think, Oh God, this is bad. It's the one part of the movie that I think doesn't age as well, where everything else ages beautifully. You know, another thing that I uh, picked up on in this watch and while the movie doesn't have as many nostalgia buttons for me, a lot of the um, aspects of growing up in the eighties and nineties do. Um, So going back and watching kids riding bikes with no helmets um, and constantly being out on their own, trick-or-treating by themselves, all of these things that like, I was sort of the last generation of what we called latchkey kids um, in the 80s and 90s. And it's just a totally different world and a totally different paradigm when it comes to parenting now. So it looks really jarring, but it does remind me of my childhood, which had this certain air of freedom and responsibility about it. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, we went out trick-or-treating now. When we were little, our parents came with us. But as we started getting a little older, we definitely would go out. We would ride bikes all over the neighborhood. No helmets, no adult supervision. And that was just normal then. Yeah, totally. You know, the neighborhood kids are out riding bikes and laughing and being a bunch of, you know, goofballs. And that's absolutely something that I'm nostalgic for when I watch this. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, my childhood was kind of like that in so many ways. It's one of the reasons the movie worked on me as a kid 
because I saw myself in the main character, in particular in Elliot. Because when I first saw the movie, I was around the same age as Elliot. I was a boy. I liked riding bikes and spaceships and Star Wars, all the things that Elliot seems to like. Yeah. So I saw myself in Elliot's shoes, and then I got to play as Elliot in a family vacation. That's such a beautiful memory. That's such an amazing thing that you did. It really, really is. Hey, it's, you know, you're better off being lucky than good. (laughs) It was my five minutes of fame and everything else from there has just been a consistent plateau. Oh, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. Um, so yeah, we agree. It holds up. Let's, uh, let's get into the meat and potatoes here. Let's, uh, peel open that candy shell and see what kind of, uh, a treat we have underneath. Peanut buttery surprise. So what do you think in terms of analysis here? What's this movie all about? Uh, wow. Um, I mean, a huge question. I think if we're going to wrap that up into a concise answer, this movie is, like you said at the beginning, about empathy. Uh, this movie is about compassion and relationships between uh, people from different worlds. Um, one of the places I would love to start in terms of analysis is actually going to um, one of the major literary references that is in this work uh, that also feels really relevant to the body of work of Steven Spielberg, and that's the Peter Pan reference. Um, I think that can help us get into a lot of these questions about empathy and also about childhood and adulthood and are also really interesting because we talked so recently about Steven Spielberg's work on Hook. Would that be okay with you? Yeah, totally. Let's do it. Of course. So, um, obviously, about halfway through this movie, there is a scene where Mary, the mother, is reading to Gertie from Peter and Wendy, the J.M. Barry story of Peter Pan. Uh, and the part of the story that she's reading is the part where Tinkerbell se- seemingly dies uh, and everything seems lost. All hope seems lost. But Peter reaches out and calls out to the audience of the play, Peter and Wendy, and says, We can bring her back. We just have to believe. We have to declare out loud that we believe in fairies and clap your hands. And then the audience and Gertie all clap their hands and say, I do. I do believe in fairies. I believe. And Tinkerbell is magically resurrected. This scene is obviously recreated towards the end of the movie when Elliot says to E.T., I will always believe in you. I love you. And E.T., seemingly dead, comes back to life. That's an amazing point that you just kind of put together. And it hits to one of the themes that we have seen in all of the movies, E.T. included, which is a sort of life, death, and rebirth cycle. Mm, So Tinkerbell needs to be resurrected from death, and it is the power and the imagination of the audience that does it. Meaning that when we see Tinkerbell and we believe in Tinkerbell, we create Tinkerbell and we can bring Tinkerbell back from the brink of death. Elliot, having that same moment, having that ability to, you know, cry on the sarcophagus, if you will, of this very special and very magical creature, seemingly E.T. is not magical in nature, but is so biologically different and possesses such a different set of gifts, they appear magical to Elliot and to us, the audience, um, that it, it ends up reforging the bond between them. So that scene to me, and how it echoes into Peter Pan, it is about the adults who we learn at this point are not the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. 
we are led to believe that they are like a vicious, cruel, technocratic, military government autocrats that are there to, you know, take this and dissect and destroy. And they're dehumanized from the beginning. All we see are keys and uh, flashlights and jeans. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And big we cars. We don't see faces until nearly the end. And we come to learn that they're a group of scientists trying to understand and save E.T. Yeah. That they're not there to just dominate and control. But in doing so, they, as the adults, have severed the connection between Elliot and E.T. And it's only when that connection gets reestablished. It's only when Elliot claps his hands. Yeah. That the connection is reestablished and E.T. can still can be resurrected from death. So and be saved and be able to go home. And to me, that is a major theme that we're seeing in all of these. The young people guarding and protecting their magical secrets from the adults. Mm. The adults who fundamentally don't understand the magic. They've lost it. They want to believe in E.T. They want to understand E.T., but they end up destroying E.T. in the process. And that that is something that we can all take away as we start to look at our lives that are complex and messy and weird and unhappy and happy and everything that there is something fundamentally simple about life that a child gets that we can still incorporate into our lives, which is it's okay to clap your hands and say, you believe in fairies. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Uh, some of the other similarities to uh, ET and Peter Pan uh, you know, if we look at this as a sort of retelling in some ways, and I don't think it's a straight retelling by any means, but uh, E.T., although he is the one leaving his uh, planet and coming to a new one, is the Peter Pan figure, and Elliot is the Wendy. He's the uh, fully fleshed out character who is initiated into a magical world and gets the choice to stay in that magical world or to leave that magical world and go back home. Uh, he is confronted with this choice to be with the one that he loves or to be with his family and be, you know, to grow up like Wendy chooses to grow up in the end of Peter Pan. We obviously have uh, E.T. having the gift of telekinesis, which ends up being the gift of flight that he bestows upon Elliot first and then upon all of the lost boys, uh, Michael's friends, as they pedal off into the distance. Uh, and we have this, as you mentioned, this antagonism between childhood and adulthood. Uh, and what I think is really interesting about how Spielberg plays with uh, the template of Peter Pan is that he has introduced this incredible layer of nuance. We don't have a Captain Hook. We have someone we think is a Captain Hook. He's even associated with a ring of keys, a metallic accessory rather than a face when we first meet him. And we think that he's going to be evil and we think that he is going to be against Elliot and all of his efforts. But it turns out he's just basically a grown up version of Elliot. He's been wanting to meet E.T. his entire life. He's been searching for the magic. He's been searching for that bald spot in the forest and he just never found it. What really draws a line between them is not any real difference in sentiment. It's just a difference in intention. So... While Elliot is the kind of person who would free lab frogs and wants to make sure E.T. can get back to his home planet because the natural order of things he believes is uh, the most important thing to preserve, life has uh, dignity, life has worth, the adults 
have this sort of complicated, nuanced perspective where, yes, we want to keep E.T. alive, but if we can't, we'll dissect him, just like we would dissect those lab frogs. So it's really, really murky in terms of the morality here. Nobody is really in the wrong, because if they did dissect E.T., it would end up probably contributing to the betterment of mankind, but it means, you know, sacrificing this person and not having the sort of magic love inside you that can wake him back up. I'm glad that you drew that connection because I do think the freeing of the frogs is a heavy foreshadow yeah. and a significant character moment for Elliot. He can't sit by and watch an innocent creature die just so he could learn, right? He doesn't yeah. put the sake of his own knowledge above the sake and welfare of a frog. And then we see that echoed back in when E.T. is then in the custody of the government scientists who are willing to do that. They obviously want to keep E.T. alive. They try to keep E.T. alive. The only way to keep him alive is to allow Elliot and him to have a connection, and they don't allow that. They sever that. But they don't try to, right? They're studying this connection, and then suddenly it just seems to break. And they don't really... Like, they're like, oh, wow, their brainwaves are the same. Oh, now they're different. And now E.T.'s dying. And I read that as a symbolic um, change, that it is the, the fact that the government is there, the fact that they are willing to make very hard sacrifices in the sake of knowledge, that Elliot is not trying to make any, like, there's no selfishness at all in Elliot's relationship with E.T., he finds E.T. by accident. He takes care of E.T. because he cares. He loves E.T. and doesn't want him to go, but still helps him escape and go home, even though it causes him pain, just as much as, you know, Elliot has to learn to let his father go in the beginning. Yeah. And he can't seem to let that go. He's constantly bringing it up. At the end, he's able to look at E.T. and say goodbye through tears. Yeah. He's able to allow E.T. to go home because there's no selfishness there. To say it's okay to terminate a life in the sake of science is also to say, I'm okay taking this life for my own benefit, for my own purposes, and that's okay. Elliot can't make that trade-off. He is fundamentally altruistic in his relationship to E.T. when the government, even the head government dude, who loves E.T. and has been waiting for this moment too and seems to be a nice, kind person, his motivations are still more selfish. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good read of that. You know how I read the desyncing of their brainwaves, though? And I don't know if this is totally incorrect or off base. I saw that as um, E.T. letting go of Elliot in the sense that like E.T. knows that he's dying. He knows he's the reason there's a psychic connection because he has these gifts and these powers. And if he holds on to Elliot, then Elliot will die with him. So he's like, I understand I'm on my way out. I'm going to sever the connection and I'm going to go, I'm going to sacrifice myself so that Elliot can live. Um, that's just how I read it. Oh, that's really, you know what? Very different interpretation, but you know, what's amazing. Hmm. So you're not wrong too. Like yeah. it doesn't really explain how the connection happens and nor does the movie explain how the connection breaks. Yeah. And that's part of the magic of the movie 
And one of the things that we get to do, our wonderful privilege, is debate what we think it means. Absolutely. And I love that read on it. I think that's amazing. E.T. makes the choice to die alone. He's not going to bring Elliot with him. And uh, it severs the connection. That's a very different read from what I have, but I, I think a very valid read. And I think, uh, you know, I'd love to dig a little bit more into this connection between Elliot and E.T., if that's all right with you, because I think we have some precedents for it um, in mythology, but also in just our sort of everyday parlance and our everyday folklore. Uh, and that's especially when it comes to folklore surrounding twins. Uh, and I think it's it's just a kind of interesting way to uh, examine the relationship between them and how it develops with such subtlety and with, with such nuance. Uh, you know, we talk about twins uh, and identical twins especially as having a really intimate bond and really intimate connection because they share a womb, they enter the world together. Uh, and there are tons of anecdotal stories about twins developing their own languages, being able to communicate with each other in ways that nobody else can. Uh, there are some really crazy stories out there about like twins having a psychic connection even when they're miles apart. So I read this one story once about a woman whose identical twin sister went into labor and she felt her twins labor pains from miles away as though she was going through it herself or twins that uh, coincidentally die on the same day or a day apart, even though they are not close to each other, but from similar causes, all kinds of crazy things that you hear, which are definitely not the norm. Like there's no scientific evidence or proof to say that like twins do have a psychic connection or that there's something supernatural about twins. But the more stories we hear like this about twins, the more kind of folklore we build around the idea of twinning. And I think that's very similar to what uh, Elliot and E.T. are going through with the fact that they're sharing not only, um, you know, physical biological feelings, but they're also, uh, you know, sharing their emotional states, uh, which is really fascinating. The example that I want to bring in uh, from Greek mythology, though, uh, I think that parallels where these two characters end up is the mythology around Castor and Pollux. Uh, these characters are also known as the Dioscuri, uh, and they were the twin sons of Leda and either Zeus or Tyndareus, who was Leda's husband. It was uh, an example of heteropaternal superfecundation, which means two different fathers, one mother, sired on the same day. It also happened to Hercules, because Zeus enjoyed doing that a lot. Um, there's a lot of mythology surrounding these characters. They were warriors. They were Argonauts who sailed with Jason to get the Golden Fleece. But at the end of their lives, I want to pay some attention to. Castor was murdered by this guy, Idas. Uh, and in retribution, Zeus, his father, ended up killing Idas with a thunderbolt. So then Pollux, who remained alive, was given a choice by Zeus. Zeus said, hey, your brother's dead. That sucks. But here's, here's an option for you. You can be immortal and you can come and live with me on Olympus or you can share your immortality with your brother, you can revive him, and the two of you can alternate between Olympus and the mortal world. And Castor chose, or pa Pollux chose, to give Castor some of his immortality so that they could share these two worlds together. And then in some versions of the myth, they ascend to the stars and they become 
the constellation Gemini. So I think it's just interesting to think about that shared connection between twins and that choice to be together, to be apart, to be part of one world, to be part of another, and how characters who are who are brought together by such an intimate connection handle that kind of choice. Yeah, that's really interesting because it it does in many ways echo in ET. As these characters, E.T. and Elliot, get closer, as they start sharing more and more, as one can literally bring the other back from dead, there is a, a mythic feel to this and the idea that when they both get to go home, and to a degree, E.T. gets to go back to his planet, Elliot gets to return back to his suburban life, they've both been fundamentally altered, changed, and bettered by this experience. And... That, to me, is kind of reminiscent of the Castor and Pollux myth. They get the opportunity, when you get the opportunity to have immortality, to live among the gods, and you say, uh, I can't do it without Castor. I'd rather be part mortal right, than immortal for forever. I would rather give up godhood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that I can spend a little bit more time with my brother. And that sort of, um, that noble sacrifice that you see in that myth is very much like Elliot. You know, Elliot's like, you know, you could stay here, and, but I, I can't. That'd be selfish. Yeah. I, I, you could stay here and you could heal all my wounds and I'll never grow old and I'll be like this plant and we'll have these amazing adventures and this great life. But E.T., you will be fundamentally severed permanently from your home and your species. Meanwhile, E.T. says, come. Like, yeah. he gives Elliot the choice to come with him into space. Yeah. So they both have this option. Mm -hmm. And they both realize that they have to split. They have yeah. to leave each other. And that's tragic. But, I mean, there's this, there's this connection between them that will never be severed. I love that. And I just love finding the Greek mythological antecedents in our modern pop culture that is one of the reasons we do this podcast is to ask ourselves, where have these stories come from? Why are we telling them? What echoes do they carry from the past? And, you know, Greek mythological structures cast a long shadow over our collective unconsciousness and are still present in modern contemporary pop culture. That's just fantastic. Great work. Yeah. Can we talk about the, sh the basic structure of E.T.? Because something kind of occurred to me in this, you know, now fourth project we've done in our five-project series on nostalgia. And that is that all of the movies, so we're talking, we started with... Um, Back to the Future. Back to the Future. We then did Hook. We've done Beetlejuice. And now we have done E.T. So all of these movies have essentially the same basic plot point structure. Yeah. You have someone who is young or youngish being initiated into some sort of a strange, magical, or weird world, uh, usually by a catalyst or an incident. For, you know, Elliot, it's when he meets E.T. For Hook, for Hook, it's when his children get 
Peter Pan, it's for when his children get kidnapped. For Marty, it's when he sees the time machine for the first time. And for Beetlejuice, it's when Lydia meets meets the Maitlands or the ghosts. In this magical world, it must be protected and preserved, typically from other characters, likely adults. Um, this is literal in Hook, where we have to protect the Lost Boys from Hook, who's literally trying to kill children. For Marty, it's protecting the time machine from the people in the 1950s that won't understand that he is a time traveler from the future. Um, for E.T., it is protecting E.T. from first being discovered by Elliot's mother and then from the government officials. And for Beetlejuice, it's Lydia literally trying to protect the ghosts from her parents and Otho, who are trying to capitalize on this magical world to make money. By doing so, the characters learn to give up part of this magical world to return to a world of normal and when they return to the world of normal, they're usually a little kinder, a little more joyful, and <clears throat> a little more empathetic. This happens to Lydia in Beetlejuice. It happens to Peter Pan in Hook. It happens to Marty in Back to the Future. And it happens to Elliot at the end of E.T. So the basic bones of how to make a really great, iconic kids movie is in this structure. They are all playing with a similar structure, different aesthetics, variations. It's certainly not a different monolithic. Genres, yeah. yeah. Different feels, different directoral styles, different types of actors acting in different ways. But the basic structure of the story is the same in all of them. And I noticed that and I, I just thought to myself, hmm, that's interesting how well these stories all track with these similar beats. I wonder if that's how almost every great kid's story works. So I started thinking, how does The Hobbit work? <laughs> oh man, there's this character who's comfortable, who gets initiated into this strange and unusual world. Sometimes they resist it. Sometimes they're forced into it by a catalyst, and like an unexpected event. Um, sometimes they willfully go on the journey, but they reach some sort of obstacles and in it, you have to overcome the adventure. There's often this mentor figure. There's a Doc Brown to every Marty. There's a Dumbledore to every Harry. And, you know, you, you start to see that so many of these kids' stories have this basic root structure involved in them. And I think the, the lesson that I take away from that, well, let me ask you this before I do that. Do you agree with that? I do. And, you know, hearing you lay it out, it is Kimbellian. Like, this is very much uh, a, a Kimbellian hero's journey. However, the the big thing that we are taking away from these movies that we have picked, and we didn't pick these movies because they shared this in common. We picked them because these were the movies that stuck out to us from childhood. And the big thing that we're picking out is that they feature the, like, literal or figurative character going into a magical world, young character going into a magical world, which not every Campbellian hero's journey has somebody being literally initiated into a magical world. Uh, that's just something that you and I realized, you know, four movies into this that we are drawn to. Uh, so that's something that I'm, I'm really fascinated with. Why are we drawn to young characters being initiated into magical worlds? But the other part of this is that all of these young characters 
who are supposedly not mature, right? They're kids. They all make the very mature choice in the end to go back. None of them go back to their world serendipitously. They all choose to stay home. They all choose to go home. And I think that's a really fascinating um, fascinating part of this pattern that we're recognizing here because you know, if, if I'm asking myself why I love stories about being initiated into magical worlds after living in ordinary ones, like who doesn't want to find out their world is more magical and makes more sense than they think it does? Who doesn't want that? But then to choose to come back home at the end of that, to choose not to get on the spaceship with E.T. is a really mature and powerful choice and something that I'm still questioning and wondering what I would do if I were given that choice. Yeah, I mean, and that brings us to one of the, you know, second main themes of E.T. The first we talked about, which is empathy, trying to feel what someone else is feeling. And Elliot's caring for E.T. makes empathy becomes literal in in this movie. And the bond that they have is a literal bond where their brains become the same, their diseases become the same. What they eat and put in their bodies affects them in the same way. Um, So we see empathy made literal. The second main theme, I would say, of E.T. is home. And what is a home? And yearning for your home. And... I think no matter how strange and unusual the world is, whether there are time travelers to, you know, telekinetic aliens to uh, undead monsters to, you know, pirates and boys fighting each other with swords with fairies, no matter how strange and unusual that world is, there is only a home and you have to return to your home. You cannot live in the adventure at all times. And the question is, is when we all eventually get into the strange and unusual, when we come back, what have we learned? Because we all eventually do have to return home. And when we do, who are we? Are we going to be like Elliot, reconciling his broken home, the loss of his best friend in E.T., but being able to now go out as a confident young man into the world. You know, there's a uh, just a world in which I imagine where Elliot's life goes from here. Yeah. And I see Elliot, you know, a great writer telling amazing sci-fi stories. I see Elliot as an astronaut or mm. a physicist. I see Elliot as a botanist yeah. studying biology and plants. I could see what this experience has done to this character. And I can imagine where this character is going from here. And it is all powerful. And that is the testament to really great writing. Your story doesn't have to be unique. It doesn't have to be completely original. What we see is a retelling of a myth that starts in ancient Greece, gets reworked for Peter Pan, and follows a structure that several other movies have done in a Cambillian sense. It's not unique, right? And it's very core. If you strip it down to its bare parts, it's not an original story, but it's told in an original way. And I find myself wondering what these characters are going to be doing after it. That is how alive Elliot feels as a character to me. 
that I see a potential life that this character would have. And that is the power of great storytelling that a character, a made up character can feel so real to me that I'm debating, do I think he'd be better as an astronaut or as a poet? Right. You know, like, and so I start wondering where Elliot's life would go after this because it's going to go somewhere, right? Elliot feels alive to me. And that's the power that Steven Spielberg and the amazing team that worked on E.T. did. That is the magic of it. Because another question that I had is if I'm seeing that this is the same story as all of these other movies, and in many ways, this is the simplest of them all. You know, it doesn't have Tim Burton's bizarre art direction. Yeah. Right? It doesn't have this amazing time machine, nostalgic for the 50s feel of Back to the Future. Nor does it go to Neverland, this completely amazing, bizarre world. This is the simplest of them. Why is it the most powerful? And I was asking myself, because it clearly has been, at least for me, of the movies that we have done, the most powerful, the one that really, really hits me in the nostalgia feels more so than the others. And I think it's because it is so simple, because it doesn't try to uh, be fresh and original in its core structure. It's fresh and original in its design, its production, its use of practical and digital effects. It is innovative, but not at its core. And it makes a character, characters like E.T. and Elliot, become so real to me that I am feeling what they're feeling. And I am wondering, like, what kind of job does E.T. have? Yeah. You know, what's his planet like? Does he have a family? Do they all share a psychic connection with each other? Or is it just a psychic connection with Elliot? Like, I'm wondering these things because E.T. feels so real to me. And that is the power in this movie. Oh, I, thank you for that. That was really wonderful and heartfelt. And I, I just really appreciate everything that you've put into um, all of the emotion that you've brought to this, this movie being so special to you. You know, the other thing to keep in mind, and one of the reasons that Elliot really jumps off the page or jumps off the screen is that he is a semi-autobiographical character for Spielberg, who was a child of divorce. And Elliot works through some of the pain and some of the trauma of that awful thing that happens to so many kids in our world uh, and the, the feeling of being split from a part of your family. Uh, and I feel, you know, too, in this watch as an adult, so much empathy and sympathy for Mary, for this woman who is suddenly a single mother of three kids and you know, there's an alien in her house and she's trying to manage the fact that she's got, you know, a teenager, this middle child and a young daughter and is just completely overwhelmed at so many points and is going through trauma on her own. The family feels uh, really real and the glue that holds them together uh, is just barely holding before E.T. gets there. Uh, so I think that's an important thing to point out, that there is this very real uh, family trauma that these people are working through, that bringing E.T. into the mix, uh, it's able to heal them in some way and bring them together. You know, these three siblings who have nothing in common, who kind of can't stand each other at the beginning, are, you know, so much more of a cohesive unit by the end and are willing to sacrifice themselves for each other uh, just because this catalyst, this sort of magical catalyst has come into their lives. Um, 
And another thing that I'll bring up that I think is, uh, is really special about a lot of 80s movies about children and adventures is the kind of boyhood that it, uh, it, it puts forth as heroic, the kind of heroic boyhood that uh, Elliot has, that Bastion has in The NeverEnding Story, that Sean Astin's character has in The Goonies. I'm so sorry, I can't remember his name. But there's this uh, sensitivity and uh, introspection that is really held up as heroic rather than, uh, you know, the the boisterous, loud, uh, you know, overly uh, obsessed with their masculinity uh, type of guy uh, that is put forth as really special and really powerful. And how Elliot, you know, the most heroic thing that he does is tell another creature that he loves them. Uh, and they they spend time together caring for each other through touch, through speech, through, uh, you know, acts of flight. Uh, I just think the the sensitivity of that boyhood is something that is really interesting. And I, I love that it's celebrated on this screen. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, and, you know, traditionally stories of four young men, four boys, yeah. are usually full of action and war and teach a more toxic version of masculinity. And it's amazing that there was these run of movies in the 80s that had these lead characters that were rejecting that. You know, you very much get the sense in all of those movies that there is someone is modeling that hero after their own life. For the kids that weren't great at sports and maybe, you know, got picked on who liked to play Dungeons and Dragons and and stuff that for the odd nerds. Yeah. And it's great that the odd nerds get their day to be heroes in these movies. Yeah. But it's more than just being the nerd. It's about being the one who's able to like think heart forward uh, that I think is really special. Absolutely. I have one last thing I wanted to bring up. Yeah, go And it's for an it. interesting part. You know, I said that, uh, you know, E.T. at its core is not an original story, but it does do one really original thing. We talked about it in the beginning. We kind of teased it. There's no antagonist yeah. in this. You know, for you can call the government an antagonist. They do get in the way of reuniting E.T. And for um, they do separate E.T. from his ship. And then they do get in between Elliot and E.T. on his journey home, and they do have to be evaded. So they are an obstacle for our heroes, but they're not actively working against them. There's no villain in this. And I thought that that was another part of what makes this movie so special, that there's no one to root really against. You kind of think it's going to be the government. You know, Spielberg makes them look very villainous in the beginning and the way he shoots these government, the government employees, the way he hides their faces, the way it shows the cars really big and it shows their tires just stopping, you know, the way that they're spying on the neighborhood looking for ET. You're thinking like, okay, there's going to be an evil government conspiracy, like in the way there is in stranger things. And it's just not that. Yeah. It, it turns out they're just a bunch of scientists trying to understand and save ET they get in the way, they do more harm than good to our heroes, but there's no actual villain. Now, I personally think the movie succeeds because of that. I don't think that's a bad thing, but you also mentioned that as a kid, you felt bored watching it. Yeah. And I wonder, 
if there are more people that agree with you because no one comes out and says, I don't like E.T., right? Because everyone's supposed to love it. So there's a lot of groupthink there. But I wonder if of the people that when they saw it in a kid and they thought it was slow and they weren't into it, I wonder if that might be why. Uh, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. Um, because there is not as black and white a morality, there's not as clear um, a conflict between two sides it's more um, it, it's more about building the suspense between these two different sides and building the suspense of like trying to hide ET from uh, from Elliot's mother Mary, who like is a is a gentle and like kind woman who is the first one out there to investigate the goblin when they say there's a goblin in the shed. So it's like she wouldn't really stand in the way if she were brought in on it early. She just probably wouldn't understand, and I think that's the core of like this real antagonism between the childhood and the adulthood is like, there's an understanding. There is a, a communication gap between these two sets of people because like in Peter Pan, there's this assumption that once you have grown up and embraced a certain level of complexity, you have lost something of the innocence of childhood. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a really interesting thing to bring that up as the like, perhaps that's why, you know, this didn't appeal to me as a kid, but I can get a lot more of out of it as an adult because I understand that there is this, this gap in communication and there's this thing that I'm missing uh, that this little kid had. Yeah. I mean, I think of the movie from Mary's perspective. Yeah. One, most of her kids call her Mary. They don't even call her I mom. I know. Even Gertie calls her Mary and I'm like, oh God. And that to me is a clue that, you know, this is a family that is in some form of a crisis. And Mary has to work a job to provide for her three kids because her husband skipped out to Mexico. Presumably, I don't know if they said with another woman, but I with think- With Sally. With Sally. Yeah. Okay, they did say with another woman. So he left the family to go have adventures in Mexico with another woman, leaving them to fend for their own. She's got three kids who are constantly at each other's throats like kids are going to be, especially siblings. She's completely overwhelmed and then comes to find out they're hiding an alien in their home. Yeah. Like that's a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> that is insane. The sacrifices that she has to make for this family, the fact that she puts this family's needs ahead of her own, the fact that she is constantly overwhelmed and her kids, like most kids do with their mothers, they just take them for granted. You know, like it isn't till you get old till you realize that like, oh my God, my mother did everything. Yeah. Literally everything for me. Yeah. You know, but as a kid, it's that's your life and you take it for granted. And the reward is they're hiding an alien. Like you could see why she would be upset. Yeah, absolutely. You know, oh, you put a strange life form into our house and are feeding it. Uh and what? now Elliot's dying? Yeah. What is going on? Absolutely. And then and then before she can even wrap her head around what's happening. Her home becomes a government fortress, yeah. laboratory slash military compound. Yeah. Like who doesn't, who wouldn't be like completely at the end. And yet there she is standing by Elliot as he says goodbye to E.T. and chooses to stay with her. And yeah, there's that, this world that the perspective, her perspective of this movie and looking at this movie from her eyes thinking like, oh man, this poor woman. Yeah. 
Well, and that's the transcendent moment, though, at the end of the movie with, uh, you know, everybody gathered at the bald spot in the forest as E.T. and Elliot say goodbye. As the spaceship takes off, we have the entire family. Uh, we have Keys, uh, who has also made it just in time to watch. He doesn't stop what's happening. He's got plenty of time to stop what's happening, uh, but he doesn't because everybody who witnesses that is transformed. The kids who were friends with Michael, who wanted nothing to do with Elliot in the beginning of this, are like, we just helped save this alien. And now we're seeing something literally magical happen. We are, they're transformed forever. And I think to have the, um, the character who is led to be, you're led to think is your antagonist, this Keys character, be there at the end and have this transformative moment is really powerful because we know he's going to take that back with him. We know they're all going to take this back with them and they're all going to be stronger. They're all going to be kinder. They're all going to have a new perspective when they go back. Yeah, man. Empathy in home. I love it. Yeah. Do you have anything that we didn't touch on? I, I don't really. I want to read a quote from one of the reviews for ET in uh, Texas monthly that I think is just really spot on for some of the things we've talked about today. Uh, and that's uh, that E.T. is, quote, a distillation of adolescent American pop, taking its love of flight from Peter Pan and its aching throb of homesickness from the Wizard of Oz, end quote. The reason I wanted to end with that quote today is that, Derek, you were talking about this structure and how all these movies that we've chosen for this series seem to conform to this amazing structure of this young person being initiated into a magical world uh, and then making the choice to go back to their ordinary world. And wouldn't you know, we had planned this from the beginning. The very last installment of our nostalgia series is going to be The Wizard of Oz, the mother of all movies where a young person goes to a magical world. Uh, so we wanted to announce that early and get you guys pumped and excited because we are. I don't know how many times we have referenced The Wizard of Oz on the podcast with regard to so many other movies or TV shows or books and whatnot. So this is going to be a really exciting thing for us to take on, and we hope that you'll join us. Um, this has been a wonderful journey talking about E.T. Thank you for opening it up to me and encouraging me to watch it again and find new love for it and find uh, new discoveries in it. I really did, and I really feel richer for the experience. Yeah, and confession time, Midnight Myth listeners. This five-part series has been a bit of a ruse. We did this all just to lead up to Wizard of Oz. We sure did. We wanted to do Wizard of Oz, and we're like, we can't just do Wizard of Oz. We're going to do a five-part series about nostalgia to get everybody ready for our Wizard of Oz episode. When I was a little boy, I called it Boz. It was <laughs> my first favorite movie. This is the It's the first movie I can remember seeing. It's my first yeah. favorite movie I adore this movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I cannot wait to go somewhere over the rainbow. Well, more on that next time. And until next time, everyone. I'll be right here. Be safe, spread love, and be kind. Be kind. <laughs>